Amen. I want to start by reading an excerpt from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you aren't aware, Screwtape is a demon. And so the book is written from his perspective. So when the demon says enemy, he means God. When he says father, he means Satan. So listen as I read this passage. Screwtape says, never, or the demon says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or to degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is at le the least natural. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I feel like this capsulates so much of what the author uh, Solomon is trying to show uh, what he's been guilty of pursuing. Ecclesiastes, it's a Greek word that means uh, preacher or teacher. And so the context of this is Solomon has pursued satisfaction, purpose, meaning, life a lot of different ways from wisdom to work to pleasures uh, you name it he's pursued it and he comes to some conclusions uh, that it is all vain in and of itself and so this is him in some ways getting on his soapbox and saying let me teach you some things about my experience uh, to save you some heartache and also to instill some hope and so that's kind of the context that that we come into Ecclesiastes in. Uh, Solomon also wrote many of the Proverbs, and I read a guy who said the Proverbs are kind of idealistic, and Ecclesiastes is very realistic. And so it describes this age of tension that we find ourselves living in, that we can all relate to. This idea that there is good and evil that exists at the same time, that many times, uh, in scripture, we're called to delight, but I think it's also important for us to understand it's okay to feel disgust. And in fact, I think it comes with the territory of being a human, living in a world that has been stained with sin. We call that a fallen world or a cursed world where the world is under a curse. And the Bible gives a ton of hope and joy because of the work of Jesus Christ as we live in a cursed world, but it also kind of shows us you can't outrun the curse, that it's all around us, it affects us. And the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of showing us that in a sense, showing us that life is, is transient, that life here is temporary. And so actually the first uh, chapter, the first chapter and half of the second chapter is painting this grim picture of life it has no mention of God until the middle towards the end of the second chapter and essentially I think what it's doing is Solomon is showing us the the despair that we enter into 
that were guaranteed to enter into one way, one form or another in this life as we pursue it if God is not in the picture. I want to introduce a couple words uh, to you. We've already introduced a few. Um, one of them is kavod. And so this is a Hebrew word that means glory, honor. Uh, it's, it means that something has substance. It is weighty. It is stable. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to grab onto because it has such sustenance to it. And so scripture uses this word kavod, which we often in Old Testament English translate. Old Testament Hebrew translated to English, uh, my favorite is, is glory. And in, in New Testament, there's, there's some other words that we, basically, I guess to summarize, we'd say we are pursuing glory, which ultimately finds its place in God. It's, it's of the greatest substance. And I want to hold that up against what Solomon continues to define a world without God as, uh, and that's habel, or vapor, breath, something that you can't grasp, something that has no weight to it. It's not lasting. It's very, very temporary, or a lot of our translation says it's, it's all vanity. So if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, Ben had a, had a candle and he blew it and you saw the smoke. That originally you see it and it has some substance, but you can't hold on to it and then it just eventually disappears. And so Solomon continues to use this word to describe what life can be like on this earth. One Hollywood star said it this way, all of the success was like smoke. I couldn't get a handle on it. Like cotton candy, once it was in my mouth, it was gone. So in the context that we enter into today, Solomon just got done in chapter 2. We're going to be in the second half, 12, verses 12 through 26. Uh, the first 11 verses in chapter 2 have basically described Solomon pursuing uh, kavod, meaning, purpose, by way of pleasure. And so this first half he says, all right, uh, I'm going to go after it with pleasure that didn't do it. That too was vain. That's cotton candy in the mouth. All right, how about some good old-fashioned Christian Midwestern work ethic? That, that seems a little bit more noble. Let's, let's okay, if we, if we kick off the pleasure and we're all saying, oh, what a heathen. Ah, now we're getting down to some brass tacks. We know how to work as Christians. We know how to put our heart to things as Midwesterns. This ought to do. He says, it's vapor. It's vanity. Verses 12, starting in Ecclesiastes 2.12, says this. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what, can man who, for what can the man do who comes after a king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. 
So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he pulls up this idea of wisdom that we all honor, that the scripture honors. And he says, wisdom, wisdom ought to do it. And God granted Solomon wisdom. And he said, so he used that resource and he pursued this idea of meaning and purpose by his great wisdom. And he says, he still comes up empty. And he takes it so far to say, all right, what's the worst of the worst is death. And he says, death comes to us all. And so whether you're a fool or whether you're wise, we're all going to die. So you can feel the despair sitting in on this man. He does, he does kind of bounce back and kind of gets real with us when he says, okay, wisdom is better than folly. Light is better than darkness. So if I hold the two up, he says, granted, the, the common sense wise man will avoid some pain that the fool will run into. It'll provide some success. Uh, it'll help avoid some failure. But he says it's very limited. And so I guess if we have to choose, we should choose to live wisely. But it still feels so broken. And so again, there's, there's a sense of what if this is as good as it gets? He says the fool and the wise, they both die and are forgotten. Douglas Sean O'Donnell says, Einstein's dead, dead bones are virtually indistinguishable from Joe Bums. So you got great wisdom and the fool. And after you die, they're both long forgotten. So after he pivots from wisdom to work, verse 18, I hated all of my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, vapor. So I turned again and gave my heart up to despair over all of my labor. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all his toil and striving of his heart with which he toiled beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. Solomon saying it seems so wrong that you put your hand to the plow and you do it with great effort and great knowledge and great skill and then when you die, all of that you've accumulated and built up and all that you've tried to gain, you just turn over to somebody else and you have no idea whether they're going to be a good steward of it or not. There's zero guarantee. Job 1.21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. So as you see the preacher, he, he feels like this is, this is such a, a, an unfair scenario we find ourselves in. So he's not sure what to do with this. I don't think he's saying not, don't leave an inheritance because in Proverbs 13.22, he says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But what I think he's saying is that isn't the solve all and it still has kind of a bitter taste because we have no guarantee 
what they'll do with it. And so he keeps running into these things that seem to add to life, that seem like gain, but they continue to come to an end. Verse 24, he said, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So all of a sudden, he ushers God into the picture. 25, for apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to those, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So the end of our passage today, he makes, he, he inserts some hope. So as he's described despair for a chapter and a half, all of a sudden he says, okay, life is limited. Life has hardship. I can't, I can't find any real weight to anything that we've done under the sun. But then he pivots and inserts God into the picture and it begins to change the way he sees life. Pray with me real quick. Father, we come underneath you and ask that you would enlighten our hearts with the truth of your word. I can so relate to just the limited longings that we have on earth. Yet you speak into us unspeakable joy. And how both of those things can exist at once, God, I pray that you would just show us how to navigate that. And use, use Solomon, use one of your vessels, use your scriptures to, to show us how to do this well. Amen. Tennis champ Hannah Mandlikova was once asked how she felt about defeating great players like Chris Everett Lloyd and others. And she replied... Any big win means that all the suffering and all the practice and all the travel are worth it. I feel like I own the world. When asked how long that feeling lasts, she said, about two minutes. That's the reality. You strive and you strive and you strive, even for good things, even with Christian principles, to gain to feel like you matter and you accomplish it and in two minutes you got to figure out what else you have to do. That's the treadmill that we find ourselves on when we continue to look for kavod in our own resources or even our own gifts. One of the lessons that God has, has anchored in me as, as we've kind of looked into Ecclesiastes is this. Keep first things first and second things become beautiful. Put second things first and it all becomes ugly. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So there is incredible freedom in my mind, when we keep first things first. Because all of a sudden, all of the gifts, even the striving, the pleasures, the food, 
the friendship, the ministry, the paycheck, the house, the vacation, all of the gifts can then be approached as beautiful, where our hearts will be thankful, and now there is no space that you can't enter into worship in. We can worship on a Sunday together. You can worship in your quiet time. You can worship as you're washing the dishes. You can worship in the bedroom. You can worship at school. If we keep first things first, pretty soon the world opens up to a sanctuary that we present our lives and everywhere God has placed us back, given back to him. When we take the gifts and we turn them into the ultimate thing, they become gods. Gifts become gods. And when that happens, some tough stuff happens with it. First Timothy 6, 17 and 19 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. So Timothy's saying, God has given us things to enjoy. But if you take those things and set your hope on it, some bad things are going to happen. So the lesson is hold all things loosely or things will hold you tightly. You guys understand and have experienced once you clench your fists around something, it becomes less enjoyable, doesn't it? All of a sudden you're worried about losing it and so you're anxious. If somebody threatens it, you're angry. As soon as you clench the thing, the thing clenches you. And that's what idols do. And so when we take a gift and we make it the ultimate thing, pretty soon we realize we're enslaved to that. And this is the world that Solomon is describing to us that he continues to be guilty of and where does he wind up? Despair. God must be first. But here's the beauty. When he is, I believe he always comes with his gifts. That doesn't mean a prosperity gospel. That doesn't mean we're fat, rich, and happy till the day we die. But I really believe that because God is the creator of all things, because he's the sustainer of all things. That the Bible says that he has given us gifts to enjoy. That he withholds no good thing from us. I think God comes and he comes with all of his, all of his gifts. And if we keep him at the center of our life, then I think we are free to truly enjoy the gifts and you think about what kind of heart posture you would have in this situation James 1:17 says every good and perfect gift comes from the father above another one of my life verses is first Corinthians 4 7 it says what do you have that you did not receive so if we truly bought into this if we truly believe this there'd be a couple things that I think would come out of our lives one incredible humility because we recognize that it's all been given to us 
The rest of that First Corinthians verse says, why do, you, why do you brag like it came from you? But think of the James verse when we realize that it's all from God. And so we can give credit as Christians to God when we see a baby born and we say, what a miracle. Or when we recognize that our unbeliever that we never thought would see his need for Christ comes to faith and we say, praise God, what a miracle. Or when you look at yourself and you realize the God of the universe became a man, what a miracle. And he did that to, to change my heart of stone and pride and self and arrogance to one that delights in serving. What a miracle. But when you start to recognize that God brings his gifts, pretty soon every action can be a miracle. The most mundane things in our life can be infused with kavod. The daily grind of work or parenting or being a spouse or being a good friend or listening to someone who talks too much. The daily grind all of a sudden can have meaning and purpose. Homework, maybe. So, in chapter 2, the two things that Solomon highlights are wisdom and toil. John O'Donnell says, serve God with all that you think, wisdom, and serve God with all that you do, toil. So he gives us kind of a, a practical application of what it looks like to keep God at the center of things. Essentially, serve God in those things. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would uh, guide me and teach me and, and guide and enlighten you. What does it look like to have God in view when you're working? What does it look like to have God in view when you're studying? What does it look like to have God in view when you're uh, entering into conflict? Like what's it mean to keep God at the center? Where I think we can practice consecrating ourselves to God in real intentional, defined and structured ways. And then hopefully that leaks out into all of life. Where now we're guilty of, in 1 Corinthians, it says, pray without ceasing. That's what we want to be about. One author says, God is the essence of the positive life. And every moment is a gift from him. Even with everything that is missing, what we do have is still a gift from God. The wisdom, the work, the pleasure of a good meal are no more than appetizers, but they are good appetizers. And so again, the reality that we can all say thank you for someone saying it out loud, because this is what I experience and this is what I feel, is the, the limits of life bother the heck out of me, to be honest with you. I wish things lasted longer than they do. I hate the idea of consumable things. But yet, God speaks into that. One, one place I learned this lesson was um, college baseball for me wasn't what I wanted it to be. If it was, I wouldn't have a job right now because uh, Major League Baseball isn't going on, right? 
So I guess I could be thankful for that. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't panning out. It wasn't as enjoyable as I wanted to be. I wasn't performing like I wanted to. Things just weren't coming together. And so it was a very, very frustrating time in my life. But I can remember being finished with practice and realizing I still love practice. I love taking ground balls and fly balls. I love hitting batting practice. And yes, it didn't come with the same uh, adrenaline dump. It didn't come with the same competitive nature as performing in a game. But, God, but it was like, but you know what? I'm gonna continue to do this simply because I just love the process. And you guys understand, we're in practice right now. Like, yes, it's limited. We're not achieving or gaining everything that we want to achieve and gain. We're still struggling with our stupid sin and other people's. Things aren't quite as satisfying as we think they're going to be. Vacations always end. Relationships are hard work. It just seems a little off. And it's easy to relate to Solomon here to say, is this as good as it gets? And in some ways, yeah, for now. But God still allows his gifts and the picture of his involvement, his presence to be a source of joy. Look at this quote, God's presence and God's presence are the reason to rejoice. God's gifts are lesser lights that point to the great light. They'll never give us the one great pleasure, but they do complement it. The more we discover and enjoy, the more we find available. The more we discover him, the more we find available. It is not the gift that brings the joy, but he himself. The gifts are simply his creative expressions of telling us how much he loves us. And so what if we can increase our, the eyes of our heart to start to see this relationship in this moment and this resource and this food and this work, this day? What if we can start to see those as God's creative ways to just express his love for us? Now we realize that we, we can enjoy practice, though it's just practice. Because he's right along with us. That's what Solomon, I think, is, is kind of yearning to get across. He's saying, I worked harder than everyone, with more wisdom than everyone, and had more things than everyone, and it all felt meaningless without God. But when God showed me that he was in it, he says, you can have enjoyment. In fact, God wants you to have enjoyment in the gifts. Just don't turn them into gods. And I was thinking through Solomon's experience, and he's a big character, right? This is a, this is a huge character. But I also thought Jesus lived in the same world that Solomon did. Jesus lived within the curse. He was exposed to betrayal and heartache and he suffered greatly and his heart broke when he saw people he loved make bad decisions. And when people took 
gifts that he gave them and turned them into objects of harlotry. He says, I found you wallowing in your blood and I washed you and I cleaned you and I adorned you in beauty. And then you took that beauty and you hoard it to any passerby. But that's not the end of the story, right? And Ecclesiastes is a book that tells us about that whoring, that despair. But here's the good news. Jesus enters into that. That's what we call the gospel, right? He enters into this cursed world and even as he's a man, amidst all of that heartache and sorrow, he's still celebrated. He still broke bread. He still laughed. He still found enjoyment in his relationships. So as we strive to kind of figure out what righteousness looks like, what worship looks like living in a fallen world, living in the curse, which we're not going to get away from in this life. My encouragement is that God knows all of that. He speaks into that. He lived in that. And he has answer. Keep first things first. Keep God at the center. And now you can enjoy gifts as limited as they are. We sang earlier, bear your cross in exchange for your crown. Abel was the first human to die. This was the height of the fall the consequence of sin. And when Abel died, Abel was finished. When Jesus died, death was finished. That's the hope that we hang on to as we wrestle with loss and heartache. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, it's hard as, as emotional beings, man, in, in the middle of heartache, sometimes all that we can hold on to is your promise of eternity, but we thank you that we can hold on to it. But God, let us, let us understand and walk in uh, the tremendous freedom and, and in my mind, the tremendous fun of what it looks like to acknowledge you as the giver of all things. And then we find just tremendous worship that reaches every corner, every aspect of our life. So that though we walk with limps, we can have great joy within our soul. We praise you and recognize that you are the one who has accomplished all of this on our behalf. That you do what, what God does, you win. Thank you for being a conqueror and thank you for making us victors in Christ Jesus. Amen.